All right. If I'm looking particularly ugly this morning, there's a reason for it. Um, I just want you know, you, you probably still think, he looks unusually ugly. Uh, well, it's, it's, he's always ugly, but unusually so. Do you ever have this where you eat something and, and it transforms your face? I, I, one time when I was in grad school, I woke up at 2 in the morning, looked in the, and my face was all itchy. I looked in the mirror, and I was a monster. I mean, it was an absolute monster. I had one, one I was totally shut, one I was just, you know, I had a little slit. So I went to the hospital, and uh, they did a, one of the top uh, specialists on food allergies was there. And and first thing he says to me is, well, these things are almost impossible to figure out unless they happen regularly. Uh, it could have been any combination of anything. We think it was had something to do with the strawberries I ate that day. I don't know. Um, but... Anyways, so that happened to me last night. I woke up and I was, I, I'm not a monster, I hope, but uh, my, my, my skin itches and my eyes are all puffy and wrinkly and, and swelly. Don't, don't I look terrible? But uh, Steve tells me you can't tell on the screen because we don't have high definition. And I, I'm voting we just keep it that way from now on. You know, if I can gloss over a little bit, make it fuzzier, and that'd be, that'd be better. <laughs> Something about my socks. Anyways. I'll try to figure out what, what I'm allergic to, that, so I won't be ugly next week. Okay, so we are in this series on Twisted Scripture. We don't get life from looking pretty anyway, so who cares? Um, twisted Scripture. And uh, I'll tell you this, uh, today we're going to talk about faith, and the Scripture will be out of James 1. Uh, I put together messages and series with a team of people, talked through different things, uh, everything works better in community, and... Um, I initially was I resisted this, talking about faith and doubt and things like that, because I said, I think I just preached on that like a year ago. I did a whole series, two-month series, in fact, Faith and Doubt. And they responded, pointed out that they actually went into the archives, and that was three and a half years ago where I preached a series. See, that's something that just freaks me out. It just freaks me out. I could have sworn I just did this last year, if it was even that long ago. I find that my ability to keep track of time is just going out the window. I, you know, when you're younger, you make mistakes in terms of hours or days or maybe, you know, a week. Was that three weeks ago or four weeks ago? Now you miss decades. It's just, it's going faster and faster and faster and faster. And you can't slow it down. And tomorrow I'm going to wake up, I'll be 94. It'll always be looking like this. It's just, uh, it's just how it goes. Just got to roll with it. But man, I can't believe it. So, so we thought that since it was three and a half years ago, and this is a foundational issue, um, and it's very widespread misunderstanding of what faith is about. We're going to uh, uh, talk on this. So if, if uh, you were here three and a half years ago, this will be a review, but it's an important review. It's a foundational review. We tend to forget things, and so nothing wrong with a little repetition. So don't fall asleep on me. Got that? And if you're here in the last three and a half years, you just came, you're rather new here, uh, this will probably be new to you. Um, in fact, it could be paradigm shifting. And whenever you are given something that's a complete reframe of something, it's a little hard to swallow. So I just consider, I ask you to consider it and chew on it. And uh, if you want to go deeper on this, I wrote a book on this called Benefit of the Doubt, which they told me was published over a year ago, and I thought that was like a month ago. And, and how, how is all this possible? It's called Benefit of the Doubt, and it, 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 uh, it fills it out more than I can do in, in one sermon. So here's what James 1 says. When you ask, you must believe and not doubt. Believe and not doubt. Get rid of doubt. Believe. Because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. Those who doubt should not think they will receive anything from the Lord. They are double-minded and unstable in all they do. Believe and do not doubt. Are we supposed to squelch all doubt? Will all doubt away? 
That's the question. Uh, pray with me here for a moment. Uh, Heavenly Father, I just bless all the folks that are in this uh, auditorium and all the folks who will be listening through podcasts, our beloved pod listeners around the globe. I, I just pray, God, that your spirit opens our hearts and minds to receive your word and instruct us. I pray, Lord, that you would um, uh, teach us what it is to be a people of faith and to exercise faith. And, and uh, not just teach us, but motivate us to be faithful. And rid out of our minds. Use this message to root out anything that could be holding us captive, that could be clouding your beauty, uh, that could be obstructing our, our, our discipleship, that could cause us to be concerned about things that we don't need to be concerned with. Just free us to dance in your presence. Be held by your warm embrace. To keep our eyes fixed on you. In Jesus' name we pray and all of God's people said. Amen. 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 So here's the thing. I last week mentioned in the process of talking about this twisted view of salvation, and if you weren't here for that, I encourage you to, to download it. It's another paradigm-shifting foundational concept. But um, uh, in, in the standard view, people think that faith is intellectual assent. And that's one way that faith has gotten twisted. They think it's intellectual assent, and that if you, interle- if you intellectually say yes to certain beliefs, like Jesus is Lord, he rose from the dead, and things like that, then you are saved, and, and people tend to think that salvation is something that God just gives us because, uh, in, in, in return for, for our intellectual assent. So it's a contract, a legal contract view. Here's the deal, you give me this and I'll give you that, like buying a car. I give you money, you give me the car, well, we give intellectual assent, God gives us salvation. And, and what we showed last week was that that is a mistaken conception of salvation and faith. Um, faith is not just intellectual assent, and salvation is not just acquittal from hell. It's some kind of a deal. It's a, it's a, it's a relationship, a marriage relationship they're supposed to have with, with, with Abba Father, our heavenly bridegroom. Now, here's another way that faith has gotten twisted. Uh, and this is what I'm going to speak on this morning. Because people, it's widespread, they, they think of faith as something that takes place between your ears. It's an intellectual assent. Uh, they tend to see it as a psychological concept. The question, do you have faith, is a question about some datum in your brain. Do you, is something going on in, in your brain that, that believes things? It's a psychological concept. And because people see it as a psychological concept, they tend to think that your faith is as strong as your psyche is certain. The more certain you are that you're right about this belief, the stronger your faith is. The more you doubt, the weaker your faith is. And since faith is virtuous, doubt must be evil. Right? And since faith is saving, doubt maybe is damning. So you create a culture of people who want to avoid doubt like the plague. Faith is the antithesis of doubt. And that seems to be on the surface what James 1 is teaching, though I'll show later on that that in fact is not the case. But let's just get on this concept for a while. Um, so your faith is as strong as you are psychologically certain. And God leverages everything on that. And so what you do is you create a culture of people who are shunning doubt and trying to make themselves certain of things. And the more certain we are, the more blessed we are. We think that's virtuous. Um, it raises some interesting questions, like, like how, how, much, how certain do you have to be? I mean, just, how, what is the saving minimum? Uh, if you're, does it require 100% certainty? Because then I'm out. How about 90? Well, God settled for 75% certain. How about 50.1%? Okay, just, I just is, is that the benchmark? How certain do you, do you have to be? I've met people who 
uh, you know, felt like they wanted to commit to Christ, but they, they said, I can't, cause I, I just am not fully convinced yet. And what they're thinking about is, is they still have some reservations in their brain about this. I said, well, if you're waiting for 100% certainty, it's not going to happen. The question is, are you confident enough to commit to it? Whether you have questions or reservations, you're uncertain, isn't an issue. But, but see, that, it's that psychological concept at work. I don't know. I'm not 100% certain. Or you, I get questions like this sometimes. A lady several years ago, of course, it could have been several decades ago. I'm, I'm all screwed up. But she came up after the service, and, and she was you know, teary-eyed and sweet lady. And she said, you know, I love Jesus with all my heart. And she really, you could see the sincerity there. And I love God. But then she said, but I, see, I have a master's degree in literature, and I wish I didn't. Because with this, I'm just trained to read literature in different ways. And, and, and frankly, some of the stories of the God, of people in the Old Testament, well, some of them strike me as fables or myths. I, I, and I, I, I question whether they're historical. And then there's some parts of, of the Old Testament that I can't even read because it's so bloody and, 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 and gory. And I question, how can that be God's word? So I, I have doubts about some parts of the Bible. Some parts I absolutely love, but some parts I just really doubt is God's word. Am I still saved? Am I still saved? And she was like asking this with fear. Am I still saved? And, and the assumption behind that is her level of certainty has gone down in certain parts of the Bible, and that might disqualify her from this contract. You know, she won't get the deal of salvation unless she, she has a certain level of certainty. Or it's, this is... And maybe a little more traumatic is I had this several times. Uh, a person come up after the service and, and ask the question, is the reason my son who's dying of leukemia, is the reason he's not, not healed because I waver in my faith? I'm not certain God's going to heal him. And some folks tell me that if I'm not certain God's going to heal him, then God's not going to heal him. I need to have certain faith. I have to believe and not doubt. That's what the Bible says. And I sometimes doubt. So is it my fault that my kid is dying? Am I killing my kid with my uncertainty? How do you carry that around? I mean, live with that for a little bit. Um, it's, just, it's just... So it, it, I, I've called this the strength tester model of faith. You go to the state fair, you see this game. You know, macho guys try to play this where you've got to hit this uh, mallet uh, and it, or this pallet that sends this mallet up the, th- the pole and you try to ring the bell. Strength tester. Although I'm told it has nothing to do with strength. It has to do with technique. Um, but I'm not even going to try it because it's intimidating. I'll probably go two inches and everyone will laugh. So... Um, <laughs> But here's the deal. So in this, here's the analogy. That the idea is the farther up the, the strength tester you get, uh, you know, the more faith you have and the more blessings you get. And so I'm throwing these numbers out arbitrarily. Let's say 50% is the bare minimum. If you have 50.1%, well, you just barely made it into the kingdom. Now you're saved. Okay, now you can go to heaven. You got your acquittal. But that, that's the bare minimum. Now, if you can get that thing up to 65% or so, you start moving to the blessing zone, and parking spaces start opening up to you, and, and, and fortunate things start to happen. You know, you, you, you're getting more certainty, so you're getting more blessed. You get that up to about 85 90%. Well, now you move into the prosperity zone where everything you touch is prosperous, your job flourishes, and everything's just going wonderful. And maybe you can start praying against some headaches and some ankle sprains and, and see some healings, okay, because the power's starting to flow because you've got more certainty. But if you can get up to 99.9%, even 100%, and ring that stupid bell. Well, now you've got mountain moving faith. You have Jesus kind of faith. You can bring peace to the Middle East and, and peace to your marriage. I mean, it, it's just, everything's going to be, I don't know about the marriage, but peace in the Middle East. Okay, so it's that kind of faith. I'm playing off that old GD joke, uh, but uh, never mind. Uh, uh, that was an ADD moment. 
So, he, so what happens is people try to convince themselves. I mean, this is the model. It's not usually put out that explicitly, but that's the model. And so you get people, a, a culture of people who basically are doing kind of the wizard of, the lion and the wizard of Oz prayer. You know, I do believe, I do believe, I do, I do, I do believe. I do believe in the Bible. I do, I do, I do, I do believe in the Bible. And I, 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 believe, I believe in Jesus and I believe in, I'm going to be healed. I'm, he's going to be healed. I believe, I believe. And, and the twins are going to win the World Series uh, this year. I do believe, I do believe, I do believe. And God says, you've got to be kidding on that last one. Okay, that's... <laughs> Better off praying for peace in the Middle East. All right, so... We think this is twisted. We think this is twisted. Something is off with this. So I'm going to raise four kind of objections and questions and negative consequences of this view. There are many more I talk about in the book, but I'll, I'll deal with like the top four. And then... And then I'll deal with the James passage, okay? So here's some questions. We always start with Jesus because Jesus is the central criterion for what God is like, what his will is like, what his character is like. So I always ask the question, how does the view of God presupposed in this theological position uh, square with what we find in, in the life and ministry and death and resurrection of Jesus? And I submit to you that this view assumes an unchristlike portrait of God. Here's why. I, I'll illustrate it. When I was in grad school, I uh, worked in a church, and one of my jobs was visiting people in the hospital and stuff. And so there's this guy that I was called on to come visit. He didn't go to our church, but he was related to somebody in the church. It was a real tragic thing that happened. His name was Gary. He was 21 years old, a young, vibrant, passionate uh, man, loved Jesus. He was six, to be married in six months. Um, good-looking guy. He was a pastor of a youth group. But he was playing rugby with his youth group, and he tripped, and it was a freak accident, tripped. He broke his neck at just the wrong place, and the result was he was paralyzed from the neck down. And the doctors at that time said, there is nothing that we can do, nothing medicine can do for him. This is a permanent condition. It was just terrible. Um, now, the thing is, is that, that I went to visit him and talked with him, and, and I quickly found out that he went to a church it's sometimes called word faith churches, where they take this certainty-seeking or strength-tester model of faith, faith that's seeking certainty, and they, they take it to an extreme, where they, they teach that if you are absolutely, if you have faith, and you're absolutely certain that God's going to heal you, you will be healed. Uh, and if you have faith that you're going to be prosperous, you will be prosperous. Uh, that, that it's all about hitting that magical level of certainty, and bam, it's got to happen. Which means that if, if you're not healed, it's because you lack faith. Or if you're not prosperous, it's because you lack faith. So, talking to Gary, his response, to, what he said to me is, I am going to, get, I'm going to walk out of here in perfect health. I'm going to walk out of here in perfect health uh, as soon as I get my faith in order. I'm just, I, I, I must still be wavering because I'm not healed yet, but I am going to have faith. I know, I know, I know, I know that I'm going to walk out of here in perfect health. And people who visited him would support him in that view. In fact, one his pastor said to him, yeah, your state of paralysis is just an illusion created by the devil. You really already are, are healed. And as soon as you have enough faith to receive that healing, then you'll, be, then you'll walk out of here. It comes to the same thing, basically. Have enough faith and you will be healed. And the picture of God I get in my mind, I got in my mind, uh, was, and I get this whenever I talk with people who have this sort of theology, is that here God is up in heaven, and God is holding out healing this guy until he gets enough psychological certainty. can do this little psychological trick in your head. Make yourself certain that I will heal you, and I will heal you. And it's, it's sort of like a form of psychological torture. you got to do this trick for me, and then, I, then I'll give you the healing. And you can get on with your life. But not until you do this trick. Convince yourself that it will be so. 
And not only is that a form of psychological torture, it's, it's impossible if you're honest with yourself. How can you be certain that you will be healed? I suppose it could be a divine word of knowledge or something, but apparently God didn't give him that. Um, because see, here's the thing, people of faith, of strong faith, like the apostles, they had terrible stuff happen to them. Uh, throughout history, people of faith have had you know, accidents and weren't healed from them, and, and they were burned alive at the stake or fed to lions or came down with an illness and died. That happens all throughout history. And so if it happens to people of faith throughout history, how do you know for sure that you being a person of faith, that this, it's not going to happen like that? How can you be certain? I, I don't think you can be. So here God is up in heaven saying, do the psychological trick and I'll heal you. And by the way, the psychological, psychological trick is impossible for humans. If, if God were to download a, a word of knowledge, that would work. But apparently he won't do that either. So it seems to me that this picture of God is more like El Capone than it is of Jesus Christ. Frankly, and, and, and I don't recall Jesus ever playing psychological tricks with people. Or asking people to believe something in the face of all the evidence to the contrary. How are you supposed to believe that, that you're healed when you're laying and you can't move your toe? I mean, that is, that's impossible. And Jesus never does stuff like that. Remember the time in Mark 9 when he was uh, uh, praying for this blind man? It was a really odd story because the guy was blind. And, and so Jesus, he spit on the ground and made some mud out of it and puts it in his eye sockets. Um, and then he prays for the guy and, and, and then, then he says, can you see? And the guy says, well, not so good. Um, I see like people, but they, they, they're like tree stumps. It's probably because Jesus just put a bunch of mud in his eyes. I mean, <laughs> wash all your eyes and then you can see better. But th- what Jesus did, though, see, he didn't rebuke the guy saying, where's your faith? You should be believing with certainty that you have been healed, and then you'll be healed. No, he doesn't do that. He says, okay, well, then let's pray again. And he goes at it a second time, and the second time is a charm. Uh, even the Son of God had to persevere in prayer sometime to come against the stuff he had to come against. And so it's just not consistent with the character of God or the ministry of Jesus to have this idea that if you just do the psychological trick then you, and move that puck up the, the, the strength tester enough, well, then you, you'll, you'll get your salvation, then you'll get your healing, and then you'll get your whatever, whatever, whatever. And why is, why is by the way, the psychological certainty a, a virtue? What is virtuous about that? Why would God leverage everything, heaven and hell and healing, on how psychologically certain you can make yourself. Why is it virtuous to be able to do that? It seems to me that the people who are good at that are very simple people or delusional people. They're really good at, at convincing themselves of things that aren't real, you know? But why is that a virtue? And the ones who are bad at it tend to be rational people who are uh, balanced. And why would God be prejudiced against rational, balanced people? What's he, why, why does he stack the deck against rational, balanced people? He's the one who made them rational and balanced. And why throughout the Bible does God treat people as rational people? He, tells, he, he says, use your mind. Come let us reason. He wants us to think. He's not against thinking. Uh, and, and so what is this thing with psychological certainty that God leverages everything on that? Uh, it, just, it just doesn't fit the character uh, of God that we're found, is found in Jesus. So here's the second thing. Uh, th- this view can cause people to have a learning phobia. And here's why. If, if heaven and hell and everything else hangs on your psychological certainty and doubt is evil and of the devil, well, then you're going to avoid doubt like the plagues. You're going to avoid anything that might cause you doubt. And reading books that are not from the perspective that you hold, that might cause you doubt. Reading books that object to Christianity, that might cause you doubt. Becoming close friends with people who aren't Christians, that might cause you doubt. You, you don't want to be curious about other positions and other views and find out what other people genuinely think because it might cause you to doubt. 
So if you have to be in dialogue with somebody who has a different opinion of yours or have to read a book that has a different opinion than yours, you're not going to be genuinely empathetic as you talk with the person or read the book. Really trying to find out what's their perspective and why don't they believe the way I believe. And You're not going to really be trying to genuinely get on the inside of them because you'll be too busy refuting them. You're, 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 you're just hearing for the sake of, of refuting because you have to protect, you have to protect this, this faith. You don't want any kind of doubt to come in the, in the way. This may be one reason why it is true that conservative Christians tend to have a reputation for being narrow-minded. And not being able to uh, appreciate other perspectives. Um, it tends to be insulated. This kind of view, I've seen parents who inflict this on their children where they just want to protect their children from anything that could possibly cause their kids to ever uh, question their faith. So they only get their beliefs reinforced. And in this world, folks, maybe a hundred years ago it wasn't this way, but in this world today, that's a dangerous way to raise children. Because sooner or later the complex, ambiguous world of questions and objections is going to find them out. Which leads to my third point. This view sets people up for a fall. And I've seen this happen way too many times, especially with young people. What happens is that, that uh, having a certainty-seeking faith, where you, you see certainty as a virtue and doubt as evil, well, it, it doesn't prepare you to deal with the real world that we live in today, where you are going to... Uh, unless you are an ostrich on steroids with your head in the ground, you are going to bump into people who have different opinions than you and, and have different religion than you. And, and, and sometimes the virtue of their life will call into question the, the authenticity of your own. And if you're in dialogue with people, you're going to find objections. Or you get on the internet, you're going to find people who have you know, raised problems that you're going to have to deal with. We live in a complex, pluralistic, globalized, internet uh, world that's filled with ambiguity and questions. And that's just the way this world is. But see, this certainty-seeking faith doesn't do anything to prepare people to deal with that. In fact, it motivates them to run away from it. And that's why they got a learning phobia. But in this world, that can only last so long. And once they have to face the ambiguity of the world, their faith can come crashing down on them. What usually happens is, is, is and I've seen this happen a number of times, where a person, they, they lock in on their faith, say, in seventh grade. Could happen at any time in life. But now they're going to try to remain certain about those beliefs. Here's the, here are the saving doctrines that you need to be certain of uh, in order to, or at least close to certain, in order to be saved. So salvation is at stake here. So people then live out their life trying to remain certain of these beliefs. And they don't let the questions and the problems and objections and, or anything modify those beliefs because that would require them to doubt. And so they can be very intelligent in other ways. I've met people with PhDs in, in, in different fields, but when you talk to them about theology, they're virtually in seventh grade. They haven't thought it through. They give the same answers they would give in seventh grade. Nothing's been modified because it's been insulated out of fear. But then what can happen is sooner or later, they have to face this ambiguous world. And because they're not prepared for it, and they think certainty is the goal, then as soon as they start to doubt, the whole thing goes out the window. And... Um, I, this is one of the major reasons why I think millennials are leaving the faith. They find this world that has got all sorts of questions and ambiguity, whatever, and their seventh grade faith, faith is just too small for the big world. So it's so important to always be growing in your faith, thinking through issues, dealing with issues, so, so that you, you don't have this, you're trying to pour the, the wine of the world into the wineskin of a seventh grade theology, and that's going to burst it apart. It just doesn't work. And finally, the fourth objection is probably the most serious. In fact, for sure it's the most serious. And that is that certainty-seeking faith is idolatrous. And I'm not saying anything about the people who have certainty-seeking faith. I'm sure they're godly and have sincere motives. But it doesn't change the fact that this way of doing faith is idolatrous. It's not godly. Now, here's why. 
An idol is anything that plays a role that only God should play in our life. And the major role that God's supposed to play in our life is to be our source of life. And by that I mean he's, he's a source of our core identity, our core sense of worth, our core sense of well-being, our core sense of security, our core sense of being fully alive. Everyone hungers for that. That's life. And God created us with that hunger because he wants to, be, he wants to fill it. And he's the only one who really can fill it. But see, if we're not getting our life from God, as he's revealed in Christ, we've got to get it from some other source. And secular folks, they'll get, they'll, they'll, they get their life and security and worth and significance by what people think about them, by how sexy they are, by how smart they are, by how successful they are, how much money they earn, how big their house is, how big their boat is, how good they can throw a football, whatever. There's a million ways of getting that need, attempting to get that need met. But religious people who aren't into the secular stuff, the main way they have always done it, got their worth and security, is by being right. We are the ones who believe the right things, and we're sure of it. Trouble is, so, is, so are all the religious people, and that's why they go to war. Um, we're sure of it. You know? and so what gives us life is we know, we do believe, we do believe, we do, we do, we do believe, that we are the people of God because we believe the right things as opposed to those heretics over there who believe the wrong things and are going to hell. They're not getting life out of their love relationship with God. They're getting life from what they think about God, from the fact that they think they're right about God. That is an idol. That is an idol. They're getting life from a false source of life. This is why you may have noticed that when you get into debates or dialogues with people, certain religious people who are certain they're right, uh, very quickly it can get acrimonious. They can get very nasty. They're very angry. It's hard to have a calm, rational discussion over coffee with, with, with some kinds of religious people. Because uh, it's not just about their opinion. It's about their source of life. And whenever you start poking at someone's idol... Their prefrontal lobe cortex that does all the rational reasoning, it shuts down. And what gets activated is their amygdala, which is their fight or flight reflex. Uh, you protect your God at all costs. You know, this is everything to you. And so they get very, very angry when, if you start, especially if you're, if you're poking legitimate uh, objections against their view. The, the, the more plausible you are, the more angry they get because it's starting to shake them. And they've got to protect their idol. Remaining certain is, is all important. This is also why certain conservative Christian leaders, who are the guardians of the flock, they get so aggressive and acrimonious going after heresy. Uh, anything that disagrees with their view is her- uh, heresy, and, and they'll go out of their way and do whatever it takes to try to bury you because they, they don't want other people finding out about your view because that might infect them, and uh, they know they're right. So they want to be the ones that affect everybody. No one else is allowed to influence people. Back in the good old days, you could just burn them alive. Now you can't do that, so, well, not in this country anyway, so you've got to use other means of, of uh, going after them. But this is why. It's, it's, it's not just about opinion. They're not okay just saying, hey, let's just discuss this openly, and truth will, will rise to the surface. You know, rational people can come to their own conclusions. No way! They, want to, they have to enforce it. God, people are too stupid to think for themselves. We must protect them from these heretics. And so it goes, and so it goes. It is idolatry. It ought to be the case, folks. That we get life from one source, and that is the God who's revealed on the cross, reveals his character, reveals what he thinks about us, and that should be the source of everything. And, and it, it shouldn't require us to be certain about that or try to make ourselves certain about that. No, see, the God who's revealed on the cross, I don't get life from my belief about the cross. I, I believe in the cross, and therefore I get life from the cross. Uh, it's not about the rightness of my view. Um, it's, uh, 
It's, I don't need to be certain of this. I just need to be confident enough to commit to living this way and, li- and, and, and entering into a relationship and trusting in the character of God and, and uh, by His grace walking trustworthy with God. And that then, uh, the wholeness of life that comes out of the relationship gives you life and gives you worth and gives you significance and transforms you. But don't get life about what you think about God. Get life from God, <laughs> the real thing. And it's so much more refreshing than having to protect an idol of rightness. Okay, so where did this certainty seeking faith go wrong? And I've got to speed up a little bit here because I'm getting over. Where, where, where did this go wrong? Let's first deal with the James passage. It is the one most quoted in support of this view. Let's read it again. When you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. Those who doubt should not think that they will receive anything from the Lord. They are double-minded and unstable in all they do. Believe and do not doubt. Now, some of you are sitting there saying, well, Pastor Boyd, how are you going to handle that? That's pretty clear, seems to me. God said it, I believe it. That settles it. <sighs> how are you going to get out of this one, Mr. Wiggle? Okay. <laughs> it's, it's a food allergy talking. Just ignore me. <laughs> okay, now we've said this throughout the series. The main way the scriptures get twisted is by being taken out of context. Always, always, whenever anyone's trying to persuade you of a belief based on this proof text or that proof text, never buy it until you check out the context. Context, context, context. Because the meaning of any sentence is found in the paragraph, and the meaning of every paragraph is found in the whole section the paragraph is part of. It's, you, you can't isolate it. So in this case, if you look at the verse just prior to these two, it reframes the whole thing. Because here's what James says. Verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, oh, that's what he's talking about. You should ask God, no one else, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. James is talking about wisdom. He's not talking about asking for a Mercedes Benz or a new house or a new wife or better health or or anything like that. He's talking specifically about wisdom. He's saying, if you lack wisdom, well then go only to God for wisdom. And don't waver in your trust that he will give it to you. He wants to give it to you. All right? So it's it's specifically about wisdom. It can't be generalized to apply to everything whatsoever. It does not support certainty seeking faith. But not only that, though that should be enough, but not only that, there's more. Wait. Um, The word for doubt here is diacrino. And it means to separate, distinguish, to judge, or to evaluate something. Diacrino. When... When it's applied to ideas in your head, it can mean to doubt. Because it's saying your ideas are separate and you're evaluating them. You have, you have a duplicity of ideas and so you're vacillating between them. You're evaluating them. You're wavering. It can mean that. And so if that's the meaning that James intends, what he's saying is when you ask specifically for wisdom, don't be wavering in your mind about whether God wants to give it to you or not. No, trust him. And it will be given to you. But if you're not trusting him, if you're still kind of wavering, well, then it's not going to be given to you. But it can't be applied to everything. And so it doesn't, apply, it doesn't support certainty seeking faith in general. But here's what's really interesting. Diacrino, when it, 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 while it means doubt, while it, if applied to the ideas in your head, in this context, it could mean, I think it's much more likely that it means, don't waver in terms of who you go to to get wisdom. And this fits the whole context of James much better than the doubt interpretation. Because in James, there's this theme about wisdom, seeking wisdom that comes from God. In fact, in chapter 3, he makes a strong contrast 
between the doubt that comes from above. I mean, the, the doubt. Uh, the, oh, oh, yeah, the NLT translates it this way, uh, where it applies diacrino not to the ideas, but to who you go to uh, for, to get wisdom. Uh, who you're loyal to is what it comes down to. So it says, when you ask him, be sure that your faith is in God alone. Do not waver for a person with divided loyalty seeking different sources of wisdom, is as unsettled as the wave of the sea that is blown and tossed by the wind. And it's another very plausible, I think more likely, uh, translation of this passage. Because in James, there's a concern for uh, where you go to get wisdom. He distinguishes in chapter 3 between the wisdom that comes from above, uh, that is pure, peace-loving, and considerate. And then, on the other hand, there's this wisdom that that does not come from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. And he's telling people... If you want wisdom, don't go to the earthly wisdom, the human wisdom, the, the unspiritual and demonic wisdom. Go to the wisdom that comes from above, the wisdom that comes from God. Because that's the only wisdom that's considerate and peace-loving. And so given this theme in the book of James, it makes perfect sense that he would open up the book by naming this motif. Folks, if you lack wisdom, go to God alone. And don't be vacillating in terms of where you're going to get your wisdom. Don't try to fuse the wisdom of God with the wisdom from this world. No, only rely on the wisdom that comes from God. And stay clear of the wisdom that comes from the world. Don't mishmash the two together. Stay loyal to God. He alone is to be our source of wisdom. So on that translation, you, you, you have no support whatsoever for this idea that faith is about seeking certainty. So he, here's a second thing I'll say about that's problematic with this psychological concept of faith. The certainty seeking faith. And that is this. And I mentioned it last week. That in the Bible, the concept of faith is not about your psychology. It's not a psychological concept. It's a covenantal concept. You know, ancient people in general were just not into their heads the way we are today in Western culture. We live in this therapeutic culture, psychological, psychoanalytic, psychotherapeutic, psychobabble culture, uh, where you know, everybody's trying to figure out what makes them tick and why they're so screwed up and who are they to blame and why, you know, who put this trigger in my brain. And we're very introspective about that, going to the labyrinth of our brains, trying to find ourselves and all that kind of stuff. We're, in, we're, we're, we're into our heads. So we instinctively think faith is about something in our head. Ancient people weren't like that. Uh, they didn't have therapy back then. When they talk about faith, if, 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 when they ask, do you have faith, they're not asking, how psychologically certain are you? Like they want to inspect what's going on between your ears. That wasn't their concern at all. When they say, do you have faith, they're asking, are you willing to commit? Biblical faith isn't about seeking psychological certainty, trying to attain certainty. It's about committing to a course of action in the face of uncertainty. And that's why it's called faith. Right? Are you willing to commit? Are you at least confident enough to commit to moving in this direction? How certain you are or not is totally irrelevant as long as you're willing to commit. It's what you do with your life that, that, that affects biblical faith, not what's going on between your ears. You can be certain of all the things in the world, but if you're not committed, it's not faith. In fact, James tells us that, that the, the demons, they believe all the right stuff. They've, they, they, they've got an insight on all of that, but it doesn't do them any good because they won't commit to following. They won't act on it. Faith is about acting. It's a pledge to, be tr- to trust and, and, and to be trustworthy, even though there's uncertainty involved in this. Just like when you get married. And that's the one covenant we have left. When you say, I do, that's an act of faith. Because you don't know. You can't, you know if, if you're going to get married next week, you might want to close your ears right now because this could be a spoiler. <laughs> You want to keep on living in your la-la land. Go ahead. But uh, look, at for the rest of us, you can't be certain you're going to be happy ever after. You can't be certain. You may feel certain right now. That's your hormones talking. Uh, yeah, it's, oh, you're so, you know, but um, here's the thing. People do change sometimes for the worse. It's sad, but it happens. They, 
it, it, can, it can happen. It takes two to make this thing work, and you can't control the other person. You can't be certain. Oh, my, my spouse would never do that. Well, 48% that got divorced uh, said the same thing once upon a time. Sorry, you can't be certain. And even beyond that, tragedies can happen that, mean, that may make your life together rather miserable. But for all you know, on your honeymoon, your wife or spouse will have a brain aneurysm that totally changes their personality, and they become mean and nasty and vile and whatever. And now you're stuck with that. So much for happy ever after. If you could have known that that was going to happen ahead of time, if that had been a fact that you could get on it, you wouldn't have got married. But that's why marriage is a risk. It is a risk, but some of us would say it's worth it. <laughs> and, and all love involves risk and all commitments involve risk. It's a risk that God took when he created us. There's a risk involved in this, but it's worth it. So you love the person enough to say, I'm willing to take this risk. And that's why it's faith. You commit to a course of action. You can believe all the right things in the world about this person, but you're not acting in faith until you, you pledge to be committed to them and to trust them. Uh, and now that's what biblical faith is all about. Not what's going on in between your ears, what you're doing with your life. And think about this. If faith is necessary because there's uncertainty, the very definition of faith presupposes uncertainty, then what are we to make of certainty-seeking faith? Faith that seeks certainty. It is, by definition, faith that's seeking to not be faith. Faith that's trying to be faithless. What they call strong faith is a lack of faith. Uh, self, self, certainty seeking faith is a contradiction in terms, which is just one more reason to conclude it is twisted. It's twisted, and it's unbiblical, and it's contradictory, and it's not what we're supposed to be doing. And so many people are in bondage to this, trying to make themselves certain of things uh, that they don't need to be concerned with. Um, no, it, it's, it's acting in the face of uncertainty. And it's okay to know that. I'm not certain, but I, I, I'm not certain of anything, but I'm willing to bet my life on things. And that's what I'm doing up here right now. I'm betting my life that Jesus Christ is Lord, rose from the dead, all that. It's a rational belief. God never asked us to shoot out our brains. I got good reasons for believing this. But I'm willing to bet my life on it. I'm going to live this way. I'll live as if it's true because I believe it's true. And I've got good reasons for it. But certainty, nah, nah I don't have certainty. So here, here's, here, here's the thing. I'll leave with two admonitions. Number one. Uh, leverage everything on Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I encourage you, know why you believe that. And there's very good, compelling reasons for that. We've got some books out there that will help you. If, if you're questioning that, then, then investigate it. God doesn't ask us to shoot out our brains. He says, come let us reason. Uh, Jesus gave uh, the uh, people, uh, it says in Acts chapter 1, uh, many proofs that He was in fact raised from the dead and He was the Son of God. No, there's good reasons for this. It's not an irrational thing. It's a very rational thing. It's just that you've got to go beyond the evidence in order to embrace it. And commit to it. Uh, know why you believe that. Make that the center of everything. Because see, if that's the center of everything, well, that's your only source of life, which means you could be wrong about every other opinion you have, and you're still, you're still going to be okay. So if you have doubts about other things, it's not that big of a deal. I get so grieved when people reject their faith in Christ because of, they took a course and they found out that uh, one story in the Bible is not historical or something that's not to be taken literal. Or they can't integrate Genesis 1 with evolutionary theory or whatever. And then they get rid of the whole thing. I, uh, on planes and malls, I, I meet people who tell me this. Oh, I used to be a Christian, but then I found out there's a contradiction. Or the, and my response is, why would you give up on your relationship with Christ because of that? Now, there are, I think, I found, usually answers to those kind of questions. Uh, not always traditional answers, but they're p- good answers, uh, if you're patient with it. But even more importantly, I can give you a ton of reasons for believing Jesus Christ is Lord and died and that was a revelation of God's character and that's what he thinks about you that have nothing to do with that stuff and aren't affected by that. 
So settle the center, get your center down, and the rest is kind of like gravy, which leads to the second point of admonition, and that is be okay with questions and ambiguities. Uh, just deal with stuff, but be, get your life from Christ and, and, and be calm about it. You know, it's okay. You see, the thing is, certainty seeking faith is tidy. It likes everything clean and obvious and tidy. Because that's the only way you can be certain. It's obvious. Which means if you don't agree with me, that you obviously are immoral or something. Because any rational person could see this. So they impose clarity on a world that is actually very ambiguous. Certainty seeking faith is always clean and clear and obvious. Biblical faith never is. Read the Bible. It's messy. It's messy. It deals with a lot of ambiguity. Have you ever noticed how many questions there are raised by people in the Bible that don't get answered? A ton of them. Which means God must really like them. Because they're in the Bible. They're, they're part of God's Word. He's okay with questions, folks. He's okay with doubts. Uh, he, he's not like some theology prop up in heaven on steroids who, who, who is just trying to cram us full of all the right answers to theological questions and then you're going to grade us and send us to heaven or hell based on how many we get right. No, he's our heavenly bridegroom who will do and has done everything he could possibly do to enter into a loving relationship with us. And he doesn't mind doubts and he doesn't mind questions. He just wants our heart. He says, in the midst of your questions and doubt, will you give me your heart? Will you just pledge yourself to me? Pour yourself out to me the way I poured myself out for you. That's, that's what it's about, folks. Um, and we don't have to have all the answers. We're not called to be the people who have all the right answers to everything, let alone who are certain they have all the right answers to everything. That is, folks, the people are sincere and wonderful, but they, they, and they don't realize it, but that is so arrogant. Oh, you're the one person who was taught all the right truth, nothing but the truth in seventh grade. Wow, well, how nice for you. Which is what the other 10 million people think as well, and that's why they go to war and kill each other. You know, it can't all be correct. No, it, 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 we're human beings. We don't know much. Uh, but, but we've got reason to be confident of this one thing. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Uh, Paul said, I resolved to know nothing except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. If we've got that, I've got my life. I, got, I, I don't need to be getting life from all these other beliefs. I could be wrong about them all. So I don't need to defend or get angry if I'm proven wrong or someone challenges me. No. Or if I don't have an answer to something. And for a long time, I didn't have any answer to the question, how do you reconcile the God of the Old Testament with the God, the violent God that you find in some passages of the Old Testament with the, the nonviolent God revealed on the cross? I didn't know. I thought I had answers until I started to write a book on it and then discovered I don't. They don't work. Halfway through the book, it's like, this is so unconvincing. Uh, It sounded so much better before I started writing it. So I had to scrap the thing. Seven years ago, I had to scrap the whole thing. But I resolved to trust that God looks like Jesus Christ dying on the cross. And it was when I resolved to trust that God looks like Jesus Christ dying on the cross, even when portraits of him in the Bible don't, don't cohere with that, that I began to see a very different way of interpreting them. As I read the Bible through the lens of the cross, it just kind of arose out of the Bible like one of those magic eye books, you know, where you look at it a certain way, all of a sudden there's a three-dimensional picture. It's like, whoa, whoa, check out that. Now, is it revelation or delusion? I don't know. Uh, am I certain about it? Absolutely not. Uh, no, of course I'm not certain. I'm a human. Um, but it strikes me as the most plausible, godly, Christ-centered way of reading the Old Testament that there is. And they'll be the watchdogs that will call me a heretic for it. You know, Bar's shooting heretic. I'm, I've already said it. Uh, but it's ridiculous. And I don't get life from what they think about me anyway, so what do I care? But um, if something comes along that's better and more plausible, I'll junk what I've done now and I'll grab onto that. And it will be bug me that I spent eight years on this thing. But it won't affect me as a person because I don't get life from that. I can be wrong about that. I just am going to get it off from Jesus Christ and Him crucified. So be okay with the questions and ambiguities. That's why we have Q&As around here all the time. Uh, we think they're good because God thinks they're good. Use your mind. It's an act of worship to think. Jesus worship God with all your spirit, soul, and, and mind. Spirit and, and mind. Uh, it's, it's, we do that. The mind thinks. And thinking about this stuff 
is an act of worship. Even when we come to wrong answers, uh, if, it's, if it's driven by a godly motivation, it's something that glorifies God because it's working the way it was made to be worked. All right. Would you stand? And I want to ask the, the uh, prayer teams to come up here. Uh, if you have any need that could use prayer, whether it's a faith struggle or something, a financial struggle, relationship struggle, come up and pray with these folks. They'd love to spend some time with you. If you have, want to surrender your life to Christ, you don't have to be certain of this, but are you confident enough to make a commitment? and want to start that walk, come up here and tell these folks, and they'd be glad to help you get started on that. It's like saying, I do in a, in, in a marriage. As we leave here, I pray, Holy Spirit, you empower us to be a people of faith in a biblical sense of the word, a people who walk in trust of your character and who pledge to be trustworthy before you in the midst of all the questions and all the ambiguity and all the unclarity and all the puzzles. Lord, we, we look to you. We trust in you. Keep our eyes above the water as we sang. Hold us firmly and let us rest in your loving embrace. In Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Go out love on the world.